This program is brought to you by the Provost Teaching Fellows at the Faculty Innovation Center of the University of Texas at Austin. Are you recording? Wait, Michelle, are you recording? Just so you're not panicking. My phone's right there. Okay. I didn't want you to be like, this has been a day. I don't know how y'all are. Yeah, it's been a it's been a rough one. <laughs> so we're, it's going to be just fine. Anybody's tongue is liable to slip. We're off to the races. Who we are as people shapes who we are as teachers. About how our lived experience informs our teaching. Uh, we can be flexible and adapt and change this. You're, you're free to do that. We don't have to have it perfect. We are about getting folks together from all walks of teaching life. The key phrase you, you suggest there is it, it has to be done collectively. We have so much to learn from the other side of campus. <laughs> from the University of Texas at Austin, this is The Other Side of Campus. Hello, I'm Jen Moon, an Associate Professor of Instruction in the College of Natural Sciences. Hi, and I'm Stephanie seidel Homestead, Assistant Professor of Instruction in the College of Liberal Arts. Today, we're delighted to be talking with Dr. Hiile Hobart. Dr. Hobart is an assistant professor of anthropology at the University of Texas at Austin. She holds a PhD in food studies from New York University, an MA in decorative arts, design, and culture, and an MLS in archives management and rare books from the Pratt Institute. Her research focuses on indigenous foodways, Pacific Island studies, settler colonialism, urban infrastructure, and the performance of taste. We're so excited to talk with you today. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So we, you know, like to start at the beginning um, and we love to hear the stories of our guests and how you got to where you are today. Could you tell us a little bit about your journey to your current position here at UT? Sure. Well, I don't know how far back you would like me to go, but (laughs) I came to UT from a position um, as a postdoc in Native and Indigenous Studies at Columbia University. I spent a couple of years before that at Northwestern University up in Chicago, or more specifically at Evanston, Illinois, to help get their Center for Native American and Indigenous Research up off the ground. Before that, I was in New York. So I had a little bit of a winding journey to make my way here. And I started in the anthropology department just over a year ago, last January. That's fantastic. And what salient events in your life sort of led you to this discipline? You know, to be frank, I never expected to be an anthropologist. That really, that really wasn't uh, in, the, in the books for me. Uh, so I thought, but anthropology found me, I think is a better way to put it. And as you know, from talking about my background, my background is incredibly interdisciplinary and is not the path that people normally take before starting a position teaching anthropology. So my colleagues in anthro here at UT, I admire their capacious approach to the discipline in being able to understand how a scholar like me and my particular set of skills can really speak to the field and discipline of anthropology. You know, I'm attracted to the piece in your work related to food. I worked a number of years in D.C. working on sort of food security issues. And sort of my question starts with a bit of a sort of funny opening. But, you know, we have friends, family friends, you know, those kind of friends that are more like family than actual friends. And these friends, they don't celebrate Thanksgiving. 
So it's a, a part of how they understand the history of the United States. And I wondered if you could talk to us a little bit from your work, from your studies about sort of food practices and histories of people involved in those food practices. Sure. Well, one of the things that I find so compelling about food as a subject is that it really speaks to so many of our day-to-day concerns. And this can be everywhere from supply chains and infrastructures to our intimate and interpersonal relationships. And so for me, a lot converges around the table beyond the conversations that we have over food. And I think that's one of the reasons why Thanksgiving ends up being such a fraught topic. And when it is not fraught for people, we can really call them to think about why something like Thanksgiving feels incredibly normalized, right? What is that that it seems unproblematic for folks? We can think about that as much as we can think about what kinds of challenging histories it addresses. So that's why I've always been curious about what happens around the table I think very often in our day-to-day rhetoric, we think about the table as a place where people come together, right? It's like an equalizing space. But in fact, there are so many power dynamics that happen around the table, including who labored over the food, who serves the food, who presents the food, who gets to take credit for that work. Um, And we can think about those classic images even of people gathered around the Thanksgiving table with dad getting ready to serve the turkey or carve the turkey, sitting at a position of power at that table and the mother inevitably standing behind him in subservience. So those those power dynamics are front and center for us, even if we don't always readily acknowledge them. And I'm wondering too, as you describe that, you know, I often think of a table also as this sort of demonstration of, of food sources, the systems then that produce that food, the workers behind that food. And then as we know, in this sort of globalized economy, right, it's food from all over the world. It's blueberries from Chile, you know, and, and sort of trying to understand all that brought that table about, right, is a really interesting question. Right. And there is a lot of there's a lot of labor that becomes highly invisibilized in our day to day interactions with our food. So I'm thinking about as I was reading this article in The New York Times about the practice of Thanksgiving. And now I I sort of wonder, should I be celebrating Thanksgiving? I mean, what <laughs> what is your advice on this? It seems like a problematic holiday and this is a new area for me to understand? I think I think your question is a really natural question to have. And for me, the position that I take is that, right, it's not, it's less a question of dictating what we should, what practices we should and should not do with our loved ones, but how we understand the context in which we do these things. Um, and so for me, the discussions that I have with my students about Thanksgiving, many of whom have been celebrating it their entire lives and loving the holiday for their entire lives. I celebrate Thanksgiving in my particular way with my kin too, but is to talk about and have conversations about the narratives behind it and which parts of those narratives are constructed, which parts of it feed into the imaginaries of how we understand our national belonging and how that might be troubled. And so for me, it's really, it's really a matter of confronting and addressing these histories and really seeking to understand them rather than simply cutting something out because it doesn't fit the narratives we don't like. Yeah, that seems really practical advice. And I appreciate that. Is there a kind of worried about what I would say to my family at our next sort of Thanksgiving gathering. And is there some kind of source that we can learn more about 
some of these traditions and how they could be problematic so that we can bring that to the attention of our families? Sure. You know, there's a couple of really great popular pieces. Phil Deloria published something in The New Yorker a few years ago, which is he's an amazing Lakota scholar at Harvard now. So he has a really beautiful and accessible and um, well-grounded piece. My colleague, my former colleague from Columbia, Carl Jacoby, published something, I believe, in the Los Angeles Times. So there's plenty of literature out there and there's literature that is pretty well circulated. So I would recommend those. You know, as you were describing that, I liked how you talked about still having that time together, but just talking about it. And it makes me think a bit about what does this look like in your classroom with students? How do you talk to students about these issues? You know, some students, I think, are really well versed and prepared to talk about to talk about relationships that we have with food that have coalesced around structures, historical structures of indigenous dispossession and settler colonialism. Some students are coming to it for the first time. And so the way that I often teach my indigenous food sovereignty class, which I've taught a few times at various institutions at this point, is we really start at the beginning. We do a long historical trajectory. We talk about American Indian policy we talk about dispossession. We talk about its relationship with the development of American agriculture. We talk about racial capitalism. And once we understand those different facets of history, then we can start to come to our contemporary foodscape with a historical lens for truly deeply analyzing it. One of the things that I saw um, in the New York Times article is it referred to your book and this concept of personal and political investments in coldness, which I'm really interested in. And and I'm wondering if you could define what you mean about that. Sure. My book is a social and political history of the cold in Hawaii across the 19th and 20th centuries. And as a food studies scholar, I came to the project particularly interested in the way that we ingest cold. So I think about refreshment practices. I think about ice cream and cocktails and shave ice. And the way that I think about it is, what does that say about our embodied relationships with the environment around us, right? And so how do we understand what we think that our bodies need in order to feel comfortable in particular spaces? For me, this becomes really salient when we think about how we understand and perform pleasure in the tropics. And that often comes with having a cold drink in our hands. And there's a history related to that that has a lot to do with empire and settler colonialism. Beyond refreshment, um, I think about the cold chain a lot as a really important and key point for the development of the contemporary food system. And so with the development of freezing and refrigeration practices, this really shifts how food moves around the globe, what we expect to have in our homes, the patterns of labor within our homes. And, And so this cold chain, and the refreshment practices related to it, we've really come to take for granted, even though it becomes really key to the development of race relations in the U.S. So I need a quick definition of the cold chain. A quick definition of the cold chain is the freezing and refrigeration technologies that we use in order to transport perishable goods across great distances. So we can think of shipping containers that are refrigerated, that stabilize the ripening process or the decomposing process, decomposition processes. 
of highly perishable goods. And then I want to go back to that image. I um, lived a handful of years in the Bahamas, so I'm familiar with this sort of idealized understanding of the Caribbean and this cold drink in your hand. Unpack that a little bit for me. Oh, well, I think one of the ways to unpack it is to note that before freezing and refrigeration technology, a lot of the ways that warm places in the globe had cold things was through the American ice trade, which was a very robust export economy out of the American Northeast. So ice would be carved out from freshwater ponds in Maine and Massachusetts and shipped all around the globe to the Caribbean, to India, to plantation economies, essentially for the purposes at first and explicitly for the refreshment of white overseers of plantation laborers. So there's a really intimate relationship between that economy and racial capitalism. Do you use food in the classroom? I'm just, there's so many intimate experiences with food. And, you know, even as we learn about the relationship between smell and taste, given COVID, we're, I'm just thinking about how it's so sensorial, right? How do you help students sort of put that in their minds? I bring food into my classroom all of the time. And in the before times, you would have very often seen me walking across campus, lugging rice cookers, hot plates, (laughs) bowls, knives, whatever it is in order to cook and prepare food with my students in the classroom. Um, I have no idea how I transport (laughs) stuff. I mean, it's like me with my books and a tortilla press wherever I go. During the pandemic, things shifted a little bit differently, but I was still able to bring food into the classroom. And so last semester when I was teaching my Indigenous food sovereignty class with my students, we did fermentation workshops uh, via Zoom. And I parked myself on campus one day with little fermentation kits and students would come by my office and pick them up and wave hi, or they would just say, you know, I've got my own stuff at the store. And then we logged on together in our kitchens and made sauerkraut together and talked about our microbiomes and talked about microbial relationships with the world. And it was really cool. So there, you know, you can always find a creative way to bring food into the classroom, even if the classroom is virtual. That's amazing. I love that idea that you've given them this really experiential practice on a Zoom classroom. That is is so amazing. I'm so curious because, you know, as Stephanie's saying, and as you were saying, thinking about food as being so closely related to our identities. And I'm wondering in a classroom of, you know, a diverse classroom, how does that sense of identity come up as you're talking about food and food practice? I mean, are you, I'm sure you're capitalizing on those opportunities to have conversations about that, but what, what have you noticed in your classroom? Well, one of the fun things about teaching about food is that everybody has a relationship with it and everybody's relationship with it is incredibly different. And so I make a lot of space in my classroom for students to talk about memories that they have connected with food, maybe food that brings out the specific moment in their lives that feels really important to them. You know, things that have happened across the table with somebody that they love. I think that there are so many different ways that we can talk about who we are as people in the world, 
our genealogies, our histories, our family lives, which are complex. You know, it is amazing how food is so related to to memories too. And a dear friend of mine and I, we were visiting together and opened a bottle of wine. It was a lovely wine. I weeks later then bought that same bottle of wine when it was, you know, just just me and my family. It tasted not nearly as good as it did when I was with (laughs) her, right? Um, These sort of memories tied to, to food. Thinking of where we are also here in Austin in that New York Times article was a brilliant photo. If you remember, you are standing in front of the Treaty Oak among the Council Oaks. And I wondered if you could tell us a bit about that as well. I had been interviewed probably a month prior. And when the New York Times came to me and said, well, you know, we decided we want to send a photographer to take a picture of you. Where would you like your picture to be taken? And I had never been to the Treaty Oak before. And I was kind of surprised. I had an idea of where in the city it was, but I wasn't prepared for it to be kind of in this like really tight cordoned off square around, surrounded by essentially what's a strip mall, half a block away from the Whole Foods. And so it's this, you know, this grand historic tree that somebody driving by or walking by, I think wouldn't even take a second look at not having any sense of what it represents for the indigenous communities here in central Texas. So I was really proud to have had an opportunity to be photographed in front of it. And I think that that detail of the Treaty Oak would have passed by almost everybody that looked at that article, but it felt really significant to me to be kind of standing among this being that has witnessed so much of this place's history. And and just for our listeners that may not be familiar with that history, could you summarize briefly what that what that represents? To be fair, I'm a scholar of the Pacific. I am not a scholar of Indigenous Central Texas. And so you'll have a lot of people in the UT community that can speak to the Treaty Oaks representation. But it was a space that a number of the Indigenous nations here in Central Texas would converge and work out international diplomatic relations in. The Council Oaks were were many, now they are few. And that Treaty Oak has withstood, what, maybe five, 10 years ago, a pretty brutal vandalizing that nearly killed it. It's thinking now about moving from that topic to sort of broadening, thinking about how we might be able to do better in our classrooms or just as people to recognize sort of the past and today's systems of marginalization. I mean, we talked recently, UT has adopted a land acknowledgement, but I'm wondering if you can comment a little bit about um, that work. Sure. I was on that land acknowledgement committee um, and I joined that committee pretty shortly after I arrived at UT. And so I came in at the tail end of years of work that has been done by my colleagues in Native and Indigenous Studies here at the institution to get UT to really acknowledge and grapple with the complex landscape of Indigenous Central Texas. And it's really complex. When I was here as to interview for the position, you know, it, it's general practice for a lot of folks like me to look up whose territories I will be coming to and speaking on. And when you look at the map of Central Texas, it is not straightforward. There's a lot of overlapping claims to space. There's a lot of overlapping relationships to space here. So putting together a land acknowledgement was a daunting task, but I think a really essential task for bringing that complex history in instead of overlooking it because it feels really messy or muddy. 
right? It's not just a matter of recognizing one indigenous nation, but many who have moved through this space over time. And, and I don't see why you wouldn't want to understand the history of the place that you are living in. You know, again, I just really appreciate that sense of the complexity isn't something to to run away from, but it is something to try to detail. And we're doing this in a variety of ways that it makes me think of the Eyes of Texas conversation. It makes me think of conversations around statues and how do we both tell that history, reclaim that history in that process. Um, and that land acknowledgement is a really powerful way that I find it just reminds us of where we are, the fact that we don't naturally know that, but need that land acknowledgement speaks to systems of power. And, and the fact that it's complex reminds us of the, the time horizons that we're talking about and the, the real depth of these societies, many of which have been sort of washed away and eliminated. Um, and so that land acknowledgement is key. We so appreciate your perspective on all of these issues. And we want to ask you to sort of follow up on all of that, more of a personal question about yourself and your own growth. And that is, what are you working on right now? So we ask this question usually is, what is your edge? And what that means is, what are the things that you're paying attention to right now in your own work? Either, you know, that could be personally or with your professional academic work that you're really excited about, but there's a lot of area of growth for you. Well, you're asking me this question at kind of a funny moment. So I am spending the majority of my energy this semester in finishing my book manuscript, which I'll hand over at the beginning of the summer for publication. And so I'm kind of at the end of finishing a big idea. <laughs> and I'm in the final push of that towards kind of starting to work on a couple of new ideas. Something that I've been thinking a lot about is the labor of food in movement spaces. And the reason why that's so interesting to me is the work that was done in my homeland in Hawaii uh, to, in opposition to the construction of the 30-meter telescope at the summit of Mauna Kea, which is one of our most sacred spaces, there's a proposition to develop what would be what would be the world's largest telescope, and a huge encampment was established there a couple of times. But two summers ago was a really big moment in which thousands of people gathered and placed themselves at the base of the summit in order to keep construction equipment from moving up the mountain to start to build this telescope. And I spent some time there, not as much time as I would have liked. I had family obligations here that I had to get back to. But I became really fascinated by the activities of the kitchen as a space that, you know, kind of popped up right? Without any kind of infrastructure to feed thousands of people, all entirely based on donations and donated labor. And the dynamics that happen around that in terms of community care, in terms of gendered labor, in terms of solidarity practices, there's a lot of layers that happen behind the scenes to kind of make, to, to feed movements. And so I've become really interested in that. And it's something I'm actively exploring to kind of push my work forward. And now you've piqued my interest on the manuscript. Can you give us a little preview about what, what kind of work you're finishing up? And what does that feel like to, to finish up a work that you've been thinking about for a while to sort of, as you say, pass it along? Well, right now it feels a little grueling, <laughs> but, but it's also exciting. It's very gratifying to, to feel like something is getting ready to be 
out in the world in its final form. It's actually um, really close to what we were already talking about before. With the development of the cold chain and refreshment practices in the Pacific, that's that project. The place that I didn't expect the project to end at was on the summit of Mauna Kea during this protest. That wasn't a thing when I started the research for it. And I had gone to Pu'uhonua o Pu'uhuluhulu, which was the name of the camp, as just a Kanaka, as, as somebody who loves Hawaii and wants to participate in kind of the protection of our homelands. And so I went as just a, you know, as just a person, I was just going to go work in the kitchen for a few days and kind of be there for what felt like a really historic moment for my people. And I wasn't thinking about the book at all, but I think just naturally I gravitated towards working in what my friend and I referred to as the refrigeration section of the camp. And so the temperatures up at the summit can range from very, very hot in the day to very, very cold at night. And everybody kind of brought their coolers up, um, donated their coolers for all of the perishable foods and donated ice. And so all of these things are being hauled up the mountain. And my friend and I are like packing these coolers and trying to keep the perishable things cold and draining the coolers and organizing this really physically and mentally laborious work to kind of do these calculuses uh, in terms of food safety. And it kind of hit me maybe a month or two afterwards. I thought, oh my gosh, this is where the book ends, is managing cold in this camp, in the shadow of our God and our goddesses of ice and cold, right? These are our akua here manifesting themselves in Hawaii. And here we are with these coolers trying to safely feed a movement. And it just felt really like a really beautiful space where my personal world and my academic world converged. That is gorgeous. I, I, it's just, it's very profound and it feels, I can imagine the, the closure that you're sort of serendipitously uh, provided for, for your work in this, at least this chapter of your work. So you know, and I'll add something too, as I'm thinking about this. I love that the book was shaped by a personal experience that you had. You know, that in some ways, you know, you said yes to that engagement in your community and then you watched it and it became a part of your own research. I think that's an awesome story for students to think about, for faculty to think about that real intersection. I'd love, I'd love to think that, you know, the work that we do makes a difference in the community and what happens in the community informs the questions that we ask in our own research. So I just want to thank you so much again. We've had such a wonderful time learning about your work. And, you know, this has been very eye-opening for me, particularly, you know, I'm in natural sciences and your work is on all of these rich topics that really I'm new to. So I appreciate so much you coming here today and talking about, you know, the things that interest you and your path and, and all the work that you've been doing for the university as well. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks so much for for joining us and reminding us what I love about the study of food is it's something, as you had suggested, it's so common. It's so, we do it every day. And yet when we think about it, there's so many great questions to ask and so many ways in which that table demonstrates connections, right? Personal connections, our own connections uh, to the market, to producers, to consumers, the farmers. I appreciate you reminding us about all of that. And honestly, I mean, I I didn't want to sound too cheesy on the podcast, but Michelle, knowing her, will find some way of putting this in there because she's always doing that. I always say stuff off the cuff that I don't think should be recorded and she puts it in the beginning. But... 
having this conversation today with you also is changing me immediately. And I love when that happens, which is to say, now when I sit down with my family tonight for dinner, what you have said to me today is going to be percolating. And I'm going to, you know, that will be a dinner conversation tonight. I'm going to say, hey, let's let's have a conversation. I mean, I have very young kids. Um, but, you know, it was just like, where does our food come from? And why might it be important that we think about that? And, and who prepares our food? And I think having this conversation with you today is sort of meet, have that be top of mind so that I can talk to my kids about that. Anyway, I thank you for that. That's really lovely. Thanks for saying that. I like it. All right. This is great. Thank you so much. Stephanie, that was such an interesting conversation. And it it really made me think about so many things that I, I'm going to be honest, I don't normally think about in, in terms of our food, who serves it. You know, when she was speaking about what it means to have this impression of, you know, you were mentioning the Bahamas with an ice cold drink and where that all came from. That, I gotta admit, that sort of blew my mind. Like I just never thought about that before. And what made that possible, right? This, the trade routes from lakes in Maine to, you know, these hot climates, such a fascinating story. And again, this real this real sort of in the moment, right? It's in that very common practice of eating. It's it's engaging with her community where she gets these insights. There's just something so real and yeah, authentic about the whole the, her work and how it's so closely by necessity integrated with her personal experience. Right. I mean, that's not something everyone can say. I mean, I studied gene regulation in plants. I don't have, you know, <laughs> I don't have that same tangible connection with the work. So it was really eye opening to, um, to learn more about. I'm going to say next time we get together for cold drinks, we will offer our glasses up in cheers for her sharing this yes, with us. And we'll think of all the production that went into those. That's right. Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Stephanie. This was great. Yeah. Thanks, Jen. That's a wrap. That's a wrap. You've been listening to The Other Side of Campus, a production of the Provost Teaching Fellows at the University of Texas at Austin. Our executive producer is Mary Newberger. Our producer is Michelle Daniel. And our music and sound design are by Charlie Harper Music at charlieharpermusic.com. For more information, please visit us online at texasptf.org. We hope you'll join us next time on The Other Side of Campus. Thank you. Thank you.